chapter 6, on page 685 in the Bibles that you may have got when you came in. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe is me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be forever hearing, but never understanding. Be forever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, and until the houses are left deserted, and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth, oh, sorry, as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed with, will be the stump in the land. Uh, the second reading this morning is from the New Testament in John chapter 12, verses 20 to 43, and it's on page 1078 of your Bibles. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. 
but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of the light. That when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith, for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise from God. Yeah, we don't want to give the preacher two microphones. Hey, my welcome. Glad you're here this morning. Well done. I'm making it out. Here we are in the middle of May. So uh, if you want to open your Bibles up to... Uh, 685, we're looking at Isaiah 6, uh, and we'll um, um, look again at uh, John 12 in a few moments. Let me just pray. Loving Father, we just uh, do give thanks uh, for the scriptures, and Father, we just pray that you would please uh, calm our thoughts, settle our minds, uh, please focus us and mercifully, uh, Lord, uh, lead us into the truth of your word, uh, that we might see you and your glory and your goodness, your grace and all that you've done for us and promised to do more clearly as well. Father, please uh, give us repentance when necessary. Give us the faith to believe, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder, um, with an election again, we're in an election cycle, one of the longest ever, hooray, um, with a couple of leaders trying to uh, woo us to put their trust in them, to vote for them. I wonder what your assessment of the state of the church in Australia is at the moment. So if you, you know, if you're rung up, 
with one of those, you know, interesting continental accents. You know, I'm doing a survey. Uh, we're doing a survey on people in Australia, seeing what people think about the state of the church at the moment. What would you say? Uh, I wonder what your assessment might be of the state of this church, our church, your church. I mean, today is our annual general meeting after this. Um, I wonder how you think we're going as a church, uh, which brings us, of course, to ask how you are going yourself in your relationship with God. Uh, would you sort of put yourself in the powering along for Jesus category or, or more puttering? How are you going? In response to an increasingly confused and complacent church, uh, 45 years ago, uh, James Packer, um, not the, uh, um, the real estate owning one, but the other James Packer, he wrote this book, uh, Knowing God. It's one of those classics, Christian classics, that uh, I think every, every Christian should read at least once um, in their lifetime. But he wrote it in response uh, to what was happening in the Christian church of the day. Uh, people increasingly confused about God, uh, complacence towards God, increasingly number of sort of couch potato sort of Christians, uh, people who um, were sort of playing at Christianity, uh, more like it was a spectator sport, um, rather than actually um, a biblical Christianity. The disease Packer writes to help cure in this book 45 years ago uh, is he calls ignorance of God. He said in his observation, in his lifetime, uh, people in and certainly outside of churches are just increasingly ignorant about the things of God, ignorant about what the Bible has to say about God. To many Christians, um, ignorant about what it means to really know God, to actually experience God, that there are all these sort of uh, false and misleading and deceptive sort of experiences of God on offer in the church. He writes, uh, because people are ignorant about what it means Uh, to really know and serve and obey the true and living God in all his glory. Increasingly in our culture in the West, uh, uh, it's like we're looking at God more and more through the wrong end of a telescope. Uh, More and more uh, humanity and, and how great we are is becoming bigger, our ideas about ourselves, but ideas and thoughts about God are becoming smaller and smaller. And so, like... We're looking at a pygmy view of God and so naturally uh, we increasingly find in our churches pygmy-sized Christians with a small view of God. And here's my question, is what Packer said 45 years ago possibly even more true today? Does it matter even more that we're here uh, listening to God's word, uh, putting aside our agendas and the distractions, the temptations? Our churches are full of people who know about God, but do not know God, hence knowing God. And so with his introduction, he says that the exhortation, the prayer that Jeremiah uh, exhorted God's people 800 years before Jesus, it's still uh, a good exhortation for us to hear today. 800 years before Jesus, Jeremiah wrote, Thus says the Lord, stand on the road, stand in the way, and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it. Find rest for your souls. Ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. Now, Packer's point is simple. Uh, The good way of God, the good way that gives 
any human being gives their soul true rest uh, is God's way. It's the way of scripture. As we've uh, got into the book of Isaiah, we've seen that it begins, if you like, with a pretty uh, detailed MRI sort of diagnosis of Israel's spiritual condition, their true spiritual date, uh, condition before God, and also of the nations. Uh, but with the diagnosis comes God's sort of bittersweet uh, cure, uh, bittersweet medicine that God's people need to take if they are to actually find their way back to God and escape his judgment. Now, this is why God calls and commissions Isaiah into service. It's why this chapter is here in Isaiah 6. And notice how it begins. It begins just with a historical statement. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw, I saw the Lord. In the year that King Isaiah died, uh, what's going on here is a piece of history. King Isaiah, he uh, died... Uh, historians think 739 years before Christ and we can read about King Isaiah in 2 Chronicles 26 2 Chronicles 26 now here's the thing King Isaiah was really one of the sort of good good kings of Judah uh, he ruled uh, along with his son for over 50 years uh, under his rule God's people experienced a time of sort of stability and, and peace and prosperity uh, in fact there had been really no king like him since King Solomon um, so these were good times. But sadly, like Solomon, his success and material prosperity, it gave him a false sense of security, led to complacency. He started to sit loose to God's word. Uh, he became complacent and proud and eventually uh, unfaithful to God. Now, the event that was his undoing was that he decided that because he was the king, he should be able to approach God on his own terms, in his own way. And so he decided one day to go into the temple in Jerusalem uh, and light incense, light the censer himself. Now, this was something that was very clear in the Bible that only God's priests were meant to do on behalf of the people. Uh, God's priests came alarmed and said, what are you doing? What are you doing? And they warned him and said, you know, stop. And, and he said, no, 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 you know, get out of my way. And, um, and he does. See, Isaiah thought he should be able to come into God's presence on his terms and how true is this of people today uh, that we think God should accept us as we are you know uh, how bad of God to sort of you know think this of me or not accept me as I am and these sorts of things sadly after King Isaiah refused to change his ways God immediately humbled King Isaiah then and then in the temple he struck him down with leprosy he had to live the remaining days of his life apart from God's people started off so well things ended so badly because he lost perspective he stopped trusting and obeying God's word so the story of Isaiah teaches us that God can only be approached on his terms that God is the one who's sovereign God will always eventually humble the proud and the arrogant before him why because God is a holy holy God and this is why Isaiah records that it was in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. Verse 5, in fact, he saw another king. He saw the true king, the real king, the sovereign king. Now, the question that Isaiah 6 confronts us with is, is pretty simple. In which king or leader will we, will God's people look to, will we trust to give us real life and security in this world and in the next? 
Will it be human leaders or will it be God the leader, God the king? And as I said, it's a timely question given we're in another election cycle. But it's why God sent the prophet Isaiah to confront his people because like the king, uh, they too have become proud and they've been sitting loose to God's word. Uh, they become rebellious, complacent, uh, couch potatoes, unfaithful to God, uh, deceived by the riches and the material wealth of their day. And so God calls and commissions Isaiah to turn them away from trusting in human leaders, to turn them back to God as their leader. Now, while Isaiah is calling and commissioning, there's things about here that are unique. They're unique. They're not prescriptive for us. Uh, it's God's call and commissioning of Isaiah for his purpose to his people then. But it teaches us there are things here, I think, uh, that are common for all of us as we try to wrestle with what does it really mean to experience and know God. Uh, the other very simple observation we can make is that before God's person uh, it can be greatly used by God in his service, we all first need to be called. We need to be called into right relationship with God. And so there are the two headings, called and commissioned. It's there in your leaflets. Uh, the first half, uh, it's, it's Isaiah's call, Isaiah the man experiencing God the true king. And those first four verses of chapter 6, they confront uh, Isaiah. He's confronted, so that's the first C. Isaiah is confronted by the splendour of God and his majesty, his holiness in what he sees and hears. He, we were told that he sees God high and mighty, high and exalted. God is totally other from his creatures. He's the true king on his throne. He sees literally the sovereign high and lifted up, the, cre the creator, the controller of the universe. In fact, all that's described is the hem, like the hem of God's sort of robe, the, the hem that it fills the, the temple, this vision of God in a temple in, in, in heaven, it fills it. Such is the glory of God. There is no room for anyone to be in God's presence. The hem of his robe fills the temple. The sense is that even heaven cannot contain the magnificence, the, the holiness and majesty of God. Such is God's holy splendor. Uh, even the, the sinless uh, seraphs, uh, literally... Um, as someone sort of said, you know, the sinless sheriffs, but now the sinless seraphs. Literally, the word means the fiery ones, uh, personal beings. They've got six wings. So glorious is God, they need to use four of their wings to cover their face in humility uh, and reverence and, and their feet. Uh, and, and they use two wings to fly around, meaning that I think they're sort of messengers, holy, reverent messengers. The seraphs remind us that the, the appropriate response to this God it is always humble reverence in awe. Uh, God is awesome at constant service and constant praise. Because Isaiah doesn't just hear, he sees, he hears, doesn't he? He hears the seraphs call out constantly to one another, praising the holiness of God. Look, look, it's there with me. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Uh, the whole earth is full of his glory. So it's sort of like, uh, you know, I call out to Colin. Colin, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Colin calls out to Simon. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That doesn't sound like you're in awe of this God, mate. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> but seriously, this was just going on. Everyone calling out to each other. 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Have a go together. Let's all have a go together. Like you mean it. Let's go. Holy, holy, holy. Oh, you're a rebel. It's, no, you sound beautiful. Melodic. But there's this going on, this, this cacophony of sound calling out to one another over and over again. And it's a reminder. It's a reminder that God is as much honoured by his creatures declaring his holiness to one another as he's honoured by his creatures directly praising him to his face. Let me illustrate what I mean. Uh, this is for the port supporters here today. Um, just think how easy, easy it is for a port supporter, as they get together, to just talk to each other and say, oh, how good is Robbie Gray? What a freaky footballer. Oh, did you see what he did, you know, a couple of weeks ago, you know, winning the game off his own boot. And just, and let's just talk about how good Robbie Gray. And then someone else says, oh, yeah. Now, and then there they are in this sort of cafe, sort of raving about, oh, yeah. And then in, into, the, into the cafe walks Robbie Gray. I thought, whoa. And then they turn to Robbie Gray to his face. They say, oh, mate, you're just amazing. What, I mean, you're just an incredible footballer. Like, wow. You see, both activities are equally honouring, aren't they, of Robbie Gray? Uh, and this is, this is all that's going on here. And it's a very simple reminder, friends, that... As we talk up what God means to us, talk about the attributes of God uh, to one another, uh, to, to people, to our friends, to family, to unbelievers, uh, we honour God, we praise God just as much as when you pray to him or sing to him or, you see, those two activities go hand in hand. It's why Sharing your faith, evangelism, it's one of the most God-praising activities, God-honouring activities we can do. So the seraphim called out to one another continually, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And that the whole earth, again, is full of his glory, like the whole temple is full of the hem of his robe. It just simply means that wherever you look, wherever you go in the universe, God's glory is there to be, to be held he made it. He owns it. He rules it. Uh, there's some beautiful passage just later on in Isaiah. Have a look. Here's some words from Isaiah 40. Read the whole chapter. Uh, Isaiah writes this. To whom then will you compare God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are, are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes and kings to nothing, reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than God blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me or who is my equal? says the Holy One. See, who is the king, as I saw, sitting on his throne? The, the rise and fallen leaders. I mean, like, I don't know how often you light a match, not, not often these days, because Barbies have these electronic lighters, but, you know, you think of sort of the, the superpowers, like, you know, that God lights a match, whew, blows it out, okay. 
you know, and it's just ongoing. You know, America, China, uh, England, it doesn't matter. You look in the history of the world, it's God lighting a match for a while, then whew, blowing it out. The, God is not whimsical. God is he's not, um, he's not, can't be manipulated, bribed or, or bought off. Nothing can hinder God fulfilling his loving purposes of grace. Not even the rebellion and utter corruption and bankruptcy of his own people can stop God fulfilling his purposes. Joel Keane, stand up, stand up and just turn around, mate. Model that jumper you're wearing. What does it say on the back? That's cool. That's, what does it say? Unstoppable God. God is unstoppable. What a cool, cool theme. You can sit down now, mate. So, cool, 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 cool theme for a, you know, for for a youth um, camp. God really is unstoppable. We've got to be keep reminding one another that nothing can stop God fulfilling His purposes of grace. He's awesome. Isaiah is confronted, though, not just by the awesome otherness of God, His power and sovereign rule, but by His holy and pure character. He's, he's pure in his, in his moral character. Look with me in verse 4. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds, they shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Uh, shaking, it's the standard reaction of earth whenever God turns up anywhere in the Bible. <laughs> this shakes. Um, smoke is also associated with God being present in the Bible. But what's fascinating is why does the sort of um, everything tremble and shake. It's at the sound of the voices of the seraphim. It's the sound of people praising God and witnessing about God to others. And that's what should be causing the earth to continue to shake as believers, as God's people, continue to praise and share the goodness and greatness of God with other people. Uh, growing up on a farm, we had some of our fences were electrified, uh, some were like barbed wire. Uh, you could see the barbed wire simple enough. Sometimes in a rush, I would forget if an electric fence was turned on. And if you happen to find yourself halfway through an electric fence, like, you, you know, you're through pretty quick, but your whole body sort of is suddenly electrified. Um, and that's sort of really what's going on here with, with, with Isaiah. I mean, every sense is just hyper, is just electrified with, whoa, with this vision of God. He's, over, he's maxed out. By the godness of God's holy love and purity and splendor. And so like the earth, Isaiah is left shaking and literally electrified at this, this awesome God uh, that, it, that is being revealed to him. And so he's convicted, he's convicted and confesses his sin to God in verse 5. Woe to me, he cried, I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now, this chapter, he spent the first five chapters denouncing uh, the sins of his own people, saying that from head to toe, you guys are bankrupt. Every one of you falls short of the glory of God. Uh, you're hypocrites. You're... And, and, and notice what he's doing here. He identifies himself with his own people. He knows that before this God, his own sin is just as crimson, just as scarlet as the sin of his people. Face to face with God doesn't sort of 
leave him in rapturous praise, but just in contriteness and, 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 and fear of, of his own sin. He just, unworthiness, he knows that he, he's not able to stand and be in this God's presence. He just becomes aware utterly of how unclean he is before this God, that he, he just doesn't belong there. It's dangerous. Now, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus himself, he associates the heart of a person, the inner spiritual part of a person with their lips, with what comes out of our mouth. And so saying that his lips is unclean, it's referring to his whole being, the essence of his being. See, what we see here is that in the presence of God, sort of degrees of sin become irrelevant. Oh, no, that wasn't, that wasn't too bad. I'll be all right. Oh, that was a shocker. Or, you know, how easily we think like that. You know, it was, as you try to justify ourselves and give us, become irrelevant degrees of sin. Comparing yourself to other people to try and work out if you're sinning, you'll only end up deceived and arrogant and thinking better of ourselves before this God than we should. The only accurate measuring tape for our morality, for our spiritual health, is other scriptures, is God's diagnosis, God's word. It's only as we come and see and hear the holiness of God continually that the state of our true spiritual health will be revealed to us. And that's why it matters so deeply that we sit in God's word, we live in it, we love it, we read it every day, we memorize it, we, we pray it. It's why it matters so deeply you keep calling one another out to come to your groups, to come together, to look at God's word together because God is building a people, a church. I mean, have you ever talked or prayed to God like this or thought of yourself like this before God? Woe to me for I'm lost. I'm a man, a woman of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so what can Isaiah do? Well, nothing. But what does God do for him? Everything. Everything. Which comes to the, the, the beauty and the sweetness of God's grace for Isaiah as he's cleansed, confronted, convicted, confesses, and he's cleansed. He's cleansed of his sin, verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Again, the coal, it's from God, carried to God by a messenger. Okay, Touches his lips. Again, touches the part of his being that needs to be cleansed of sin. And it's a reminder of our, our need each to personally respond to the message of the gospel. We, there's no forgiveness unless we are personally touched by God's grace, personally respond to God's forgiveness in Jesus. It's God removing his eyes, uncleanness before God, God's initiative. It's God atoning for his sin, God's sacrifice to make his eye clean and blameless before him. And of course, it's a beautiful picture of how God's grace works. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God's mercy and forgiveness, his grace, as much dominates what it means for God to be holy as his justice and awesome splendor and majesty and purity and sovereign power. And so how different is this God from earthly leaders? 
God the leader who chooses not to condemn, not to ridicule, but to take the initiative to reconcile with his enemies. Imagine that if human leaders started to do that. You know, their reflex was to reconcile always with their enemies rather than to sort of put them down or go to war with them. The Apostle Paul sums it up beautifully in Romans chapter 5, what God's done for us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, what happened to Isaiah, it's what, happened, it's what must happen to Israel if they are to escape God's coming judgment upon them, if they are to have any future with God as his people. And of course, it's what any human being in any generation must experience if they are to escape God's coming judgment and have any future now or in eternity with God. People need to be confronted by the holiness of God. Need to be convicted continually of their moral uncleanness before God. That we all fall short. They need to cry out and confess their sins to God. And they need the cleansing forgiveness of their sin. That only God can provide and has provided so magnificently in his son. And I want to suggest that the most spiritual experience that you can have of God, that God's people can have as God, the most profound, life-changing experience we can have of God is conviction of sin. Because it's only then that we can come to know the forgiveness of our sin as we cry out to God humbly in confession. It's why it matters so, so deeply that as you read your Bible individually, but as we gather together, that we are confessing our sin together, humbly, contritely as God's people. Now, friends, I didn't plan to actually be preaching on this passage on, like, you know, today's our AGM. Uh, But wow, what a reminder uh, of why it matters that we started this little church 10 years ago, why we started TBE two years ago, why it's great news that Golden Grove started this year and while we need to be starting more and more Bible-based, Christ-centred, disciple-making churches and gatherings and ministries in this city, in this state. But whose glory did Isaiah see? And this is why I had that John 12 passage read out. I wonder if you heard it. That in, in, that, in that reading, Jesus himself taught that who was it? Who was the king that Isaiah saw? There? Here? It was the son of God. It was the glory of all that God was going to do in the son of God. That Isaiah saw his glory. John records that Jesus is the word become flesh. The grace and glory of God revealed. The son of God who makes God known. And Jesus, as we heard in, in chapter 12, he taught that it was it's in his death. As a seed dies, it gives life. It's in his death, in his cross, that the glory of God that Isaiah saw here, that that point in history, it was fulfilled and revealed. So Isaiah's uh, glory of God that he saw here, it was very private. It was for him. 
In the cross is where God went public. In history, as people look to the cross, as they hear the message of the cross, there is God's glory for any human being to see, to hear and to experience. And so, friends, how much more privileged are you and I than Isaiah? On the other side of the cross, we, we live in the f- age of fulfilment of these words to Isaiah. Now, we might not be lifted up to heaven, uh, given some vision of the throne room of God. We don't need to be because we've been given something even better. Given something that the cross, the wisdom, the power, the righteousness, the holiness of God, writes Paul to foolish Corinthians who are getting carried away and chasing after human leaders and lo and behold, there's division and disruption. And so it's a beautiful reminder that um, for someone to hear the gospel, there is no greater message, no, no greater experience where people can actually behold the glory of God revealed than in the death of his own son for our sin. And of course, like Isaiah, It's only the message of the cross that is the power of God that can humble the proud, convict the arrogant of sin, to bring us to repentance and faith and eternal life with Jesus. It's why we must be a people of the gospel. We've got to continue to be a people of the cross. And it explains why God gave Isaiah the message that he did in his commissioning so that others might experience God, the true king. Called then commissioned. Look at me, verse 8. And I heard, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And of course, God's brought Isaiah to this point of wanting to be sent, wanting to go, because he's called him, because he's overwhelmed him, confronting him, convicting him and cleansing him. You want to be fit for God's service? You've got to come back to the cross. And I said, here I am, send me. He said, go and tell this people. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now imagine being given a message like that. I wonder if he knew what he was signing up for. We said, what are we to make of this message? Uh, All that's left is like the stump of our massive sort of gum tree in our front garden. It's just this holy seed, even less than a stump, really. And if it was never mentioned again, we could at least say that God's word came true in the history of Israel. Because that's exactly what chapters 7 to 12 make clear, exactly what what is going to happen and did happen, sadly. They hardened their hearts, refused to believe, refused to repent, and they experienced God's judgment. There was only a small group of remnant that were left. The problem is the New Testament picks up these words of Isaiah, not once, but three times, three times. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 9 and 10 is quoted in the New Testament. Why is that? Well, quickly and simply, as we heard in John 12, uh, it's quoted by Jesus in John 12. To help us understand that it's in him and his ministry and his cross these words are fulfilled. Matthew quotes his words in Matthew 13 to explain why he speaks in parables. It's because part of his ministry was necessary that people's hearts be hardened, they be shown for what they were, 
while holding out the invitation to repentance and faith. Even though Isaiah did preach healing and hope, like Pharaoh's response to Moses' preaching, the effect for, for too many was it's to harden their hearts even more against God. And it's sad when that happens. It's, it happened in Israel's day. And you read through the Gospels, you know, initially really popular, and then Jesus goes on, keeps preaching. What happens? Numbers thin out, and then even the disciples flee, and it's just Jesus hanging on the cross. And so Jesus quotes these words to say that in his ministry, they're being fulfilled then, in his preaching and his ministry. It's the glory of Jesus' cross that remains so offensive to so many people, but yet so sweet and beautiful to those whom God is saving. And it's quoted again at the end of Acts 28, where Paul quotes them to explain why so many Jews especially are hardening their hearts to the gospel of their Messiah. Um, because these words of Messiah continue to be fulfilled. But again, the comfort is that there's a holy seed. There is a small group of people whom God is saving. They're hearing and believing the word of God. And so the words of Jesus, the apostles' words today, it's as true today as we uh, keep coming out as Christian and sharing the gospel with people. Uh, we should expect, sadly, because so hard hearted are people towards God that sadly most people in hearing the gospel it will just harden them even further and it's so sad so sad but yet the comfort for us the comfort of course and we don't know who it is the comfort is that God is always saving his elect he's always saving those whom he will save and so our call is to continually to come and behold this God in his majesty and glory and awesome wonder, begging God to show us more of his glory, to convict us of our sin and uncleanness, to give us soft hearts, repentance and faith. The worst thing that can happen to any of us is that our conscience becomes seared and hard and we, we start sort of giving ourselves permission to sin and and, and falling away and sadly friends in 10 years sadly it's hard we, we've all witnessed something of that but we've got to keep praying to God that we'd know his call of grace for our lives but also our commission Jesus taught that every Christian is not only called but we're commissioned to be people fishers of people God's holy he saved us to be a holy people like him holy in our justice and mercy. Christianity is not a spectator sport, something to sit on the couch. It's not a consumer um, sort of community group. No, no, it's, it's where we're actually called into service, lifelong service every day. And God needs every player on the field playing their role. And I, it, can I say, you know, preparing for today, for the AGM, just how wonderful it is, how thankful to God, so many people. The way God's grace is alive and at work, uh, people love and serve so willingly and generously. But friends, I think we've got to be careful and learn here that the longer we go, the danger of complacency and apathy. And so I think one of the trends that's dropped off for us in the last few years is I don't, I don't hear and see as many people coming along planning to invite people back home for lunch, for example. Very welcoming here on a Sunday, 
but we've got to keep working hard to to be that people of welcome and grace and making time and space and room for people for strangers for friends in our lives and keep praying for courage to preach and as we do that our comfort is while many will harden their hearts the comfort is there's a holy seed god will always save some and to persevere to keep persevering because we don't know god's plans with people Uh, it's not for us to judge our job is to be faithful and to keep holding out the word of life holding out the word of life as long as we have breath in our lungs together let me pray father god thank you so much for this uh this mountaintop chapter it's like a it's like a mountain that just sort of sits magnificently uh over the plains of adelaide Uh, just giving us such an awesome picture of who you are and your goodness and your grace your glory Father, what it means to experience you, to know you, to be called by your grace, to be commissioned by you. And Father, what it means to be your people. So please, we pray by your grace, do this work of grace continually in us and through us. We pray this for the sake of our own standing before you, for the sake of the lost and their salvation. Father, but especially for the sake of your glory. Amen.